0: Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Vincent Valdez has never wanted to be anything other than an artist, and he vowed and pledged an oath to himself and his work right from the beginning. Never would he sway from what he felt in his heart that it was most important to say, no matter the consequences. His integrity, clarity, and work ethic come directly from his parents and family in his studio vincent feels the most freedom in his life and the main limitation is having the time to manifest all of his ideas the work is an outlet to try to make sense of the world outside of the studio and success is simply having the ability to do what he wants to do be an artist and keep reinventing himself and keep exploring how to see and show things differently or as they really are vincent and i met in 2011 at the serie project thanks to the amazing sam coronado over the years, our paths have crossed again, but with the excitement around the inclusion of his paintings, The City 1 and 2 at the Blanton Museum of Art, I knew the time was right for an interview. If you're hearing this before October 28, 2018, and happen to be in Austin, be sure to see his paintings there and join the discussion that these works have started. And if you're in Houston, pay a visit to David Shelton Gallery, where the second part of Vincent's series, The Beginning is Near, is now on display until November 10th, 2018, called Dream Baby Dream. Vincent is currently working on the third and last installment of the series, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing that work in the future. So here is my interview with Vincent. Well, Vincent, thanks for being on my show. Sure. Thanks for having me. So I was thinking about this today. We met in 2011 at the Seria Project, Mm -hmm. and you were doing a serigraph there. And I really wanted to just start out with a shout out to Sam Coronado, who I think was an amazing artist, amazing activist and mentor um who did who was he to you because uh, he ran Coronado Studio and ran the serie project for twenty years and which brought in a diverse group of artists from all over the world really to do prints every year um, and you were one of those artists you did many prints there, like who was Sam to you as a mentor
1: well Sam was always um you know, the I mean since I was probably about eleven or twelve years old I knew about the legendary uh Sam Coronado because I was hanging around with artists like Alex Rubio and Kathy Vargas at that time And so I would walk into Alex's studio and I would see these amazing serigraphs. I didn't know the process. I never even knew that something like that existed and how it worked. But I just remember all throughout my teen years daydreaming that someday this amazing printer, Sam Coronado, was going to, I was determined to have him invite me to his shop. And so when I got out of RISD, I think in 19, or in 2000, it was about a year later. Alex Rubio had gotten me, took me uh, over to visit Sam in Austin, and walked me in and made the introduction. I showed him some of my work, and uh, and he immediately invited me, and I was so honored. And uh, and then I just became very good friends with Sam. Oh. Uh, you know, I really had a lot of respect for him, and um, really loved him as a friend and uh, as a as a fellow artist, and uh, and as a mentor. I mean, he really taught me how to do serigraphs and and how to do them well. And what I really appreciated about Sam was that he was someone who you know, we shared this mutual love and respect for the old school way of doing things by hand, right? Yeah. And so, even when, as the years went on and I continued working with him, I think I created about seven different editions with him throughout um, the span of of about a decade. Um, even when technology started to play a pretty uh, implemental role in silk screening, Sam and I knew that you could always just try to outdo the technology portion and and do it. The hard way, the difficult oh, really? way by hand, and so uh, and so yeah, I always really appreciated that about Sam, but uh you know he was um, he was a pioneer in his own way, and I think that he really helped to define how the next generations of young Chicano printmakers, you know, picked up that torch and, and continued that legacy of the print and its historical significance throughout the history of whether it's Chicano art or, or just um, the role that it's played for for Latino artists uh, in the United States and beyond.
0: And I think you had mentioned maybe in your Serie interview that You felt like the process of learning how to do those prints did have an effect on your work. Sure. Trying to dissect an image into layers and try to separate it out.
1: Right. I mean, the thing that I love most about... Um, that process of printmaking is that it requires a significant amount of concentration and attention to drawing. And so for me, drawing has always been the epitome, the core center of my practice. So I used to love to sit on, on Sam's drafting table and just with those repeatograph pens and the ink <laughs> flowing. And, and, uh, but you know, as I got older, I started to r- recognize too that it's very unforgiving on the hands because you have to repeat so many different layers of drawing on those mylar sheets. so uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it was always the other thing I think that was most important to me about the process of ser- of making serographs was that there was always a surprise. You never really under- could uh, determine uh, until the very end what the result was going to be, yeah. right? And so sometimes it was a success and other times, uh, you know, I'd I'd um, take that edition and sort of tuck it away and hide it in my flat files, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and it wasn't until years later that I was able to appreciate them a little bit more.
0: Um, so, yeah, it was always a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I was remembering also that two months before he passed away in November 2013, I came up to visit you, or I came down to visit you in San Antonio when you were living in this firehouse, and you had your studio there. It was the, I might be wrong, it was the day that you had finished your Strangest Fruit series, uh-huh. and they were coming to crate them up and take them to Brown University, yep. and I caught them for a minute and took some pictures with you guys. Yeah,
1: uh, you were the first person, I think, to officially get like the first sneak peek of them. Uh, yeah. Knowing me, I had probably finished a few hours before at midnight the night before, yeah, you know. Right. But, yeah, you know, I that's a series for me that um, is still out th- um, in the country traveling around after five years. Oh, really? Uh-huh. It's currently at the Kansas City Art Institute. A-, a few of them are, and then a few others are scattered around in various institutional and private collections. At that moment, it's always that really amazing special moment when I have no idea like what their future life will be right there. Yeah. That's that last second when they are in some way they will no longer be mine ever again. And so, you know, the hope of any artist is that a work leaves the studio and finds a life of its
0: own. Yeah, it's like sending your kid off to college. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you can never come back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And you don't know how it's going to be received. You don't sure. know if no one will notice or if if it'll be a big uproar or- sure yeah
1: or if it'll be absolutely just quiet and and no one will have anything to say about it right and so there's been certain parts throughout my 18 years now of my career since i got out of school um where there's these episodes these significant moments and works that i've created um that become like these highlights right and that really mm-hmm. help to shape the um the path that that i take after completing these these certain works and strangest fruit was was certainly one of them
0: yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that um, moments of truth or defining moments that you 've had in your life because mm-hmm. I know that 's something that you is a part of your work too is depicting sure those moments for in other people 's lives or fictional characters
1: sure uh, i mean that's that 's the tough question because there's I, you know I could honestly say there 's been quite a few since I was a kid. There's, you know, I have a tendency to forget 98% of everything that I encounter, Um, but there's specific memories that have been so deeply ingrained in me that, you know, I've sort of carried with me and and I really felt are pivotal in how they've shaped my own perspective of the world, my own self-reflection, right, of my my time and my place here in the world. And, um, you know, that's why I have to say that one of them, I'd say one of my earliest is probably... (laughs) Uh, my experience of going on a field trip to the Alamo for the first time yeah. as a kid, you know, I think I was probably in the first grade or so. And um, it, it definitely confused me because I couldn't understand. There was so much hype about this school field trip. Um, the Alamo, the Alamo, Davy Crockett, um, you know, all the artifacts the and the, the heroes, right? The myth <laughs> of the Alamo. And so, when we walked into the Alamo off of the yellow school bus, um, the, the entire class followed the teacher one way and I went the other way because there was this, one of the first big canvases, like a real painting that I had, um, you know, I had never really encountered, a, an actual painting other than at my grandparents' house because they had the canvases of my great grandfather who was a painter hanging in their house. So that was my, my own private little museum. But yeah. other than that, I didn't really have access to these kinds of opportunities as a kid, and so I was just entranced by the technical capabilities and the renderings of this dramatic theatrical battle scene of explosions and chaos and uh, the night sky, and uh, I mean, it was so fantastically imagined by the artist. And I stood there staring at all the detail and wondering, like, "Oh, how did he do this?" And the colors, yeah. and and just saying to myself, "I want to do that someday. I want oh, to wow. just figure that out." But then it sort of shifted for me, and I and then I, I uh, my entire perception changed in one minute because then I started recognizing that and trying to figure out, like, why I look like all of the dead guys, yeah, rather than any of the heroes. Mm. And then I became very, very self-conscious about. Wait a minute! What does this say about me? Am I a bad guy? Mm. Um, should I not be here? Um, you know, and so it I, it really forced me to try to figure out um, how this history connected to me. And so on the bus ride home, everybody was—I don't know—we had learned this song in the classroom about. It was like some crazy chant about <laughs> remember the Alamo, and it was you know. Uh, um, but I, I remember sitting in the bus and just refusing to sing it because I, I felt more uh, disturbed by what I had just seen. And then, you know, fast forwarding, I, I'd say, you know, my experience of painting a mural for the first time at age 10 with um, Alex Rubio, who became my mentor. You know, painting my experience of painting murals for eight years throughout my childhood and teen years was really in many ways my very first real education. It gave me an education not only in an artistic sense, in terms of learning the skills and um, the discipline of being a painter, but it also challenged me to, to understand the power and the symbolism of an image, right? Because murals, a long legacy and history of murals, are images for the people and for the community, right? And I started to recognize very quickly painting these murals throughout um, housing projects, um, the Barrios in San Antonio, that there was a real connection between the viewer in the community and the image that, they were, that I was creating because they could see themselves in it. It was their stories. It was their messages, right? It was the things that affected them directly. And so that's something that never really left me.
0: Um, and they're like daily reminders. Exactly, there. right?
1: It, but I think essentially, what it most significantly, it gave these people... A presence, hmm. the only presence in the world um, that they couldn't see on television, find on television. Yeah. They couldn't find it in magazines. They couldn't find it on billboards in uh, the workplace, but they could find it on these walls, right, in their own hood. And that is something that really resonated very strongly with me. And I vowed back then to always carry that with me. It was my way of carrying my own community that raised me, um, in a sense, the people that were a part of me. And I vowed never to lose sight or touch mm. with that. And uh, and then one more, uh, it, I would say it was probably, I was about 21 years old and um, walked out of my studio one day and uh, walked to this convenience store across the street. Back then, I mean, I had this tiny studio. I was just starting out, um, you know, as far as a career. And so my, my meal, my diet every day consisted of <laughs> uh, like a banana and a cupcake yeah. and a, 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 a bottle of water at this convenience store. And so I was held up at gunpoint in broad daylight. Whoa. Um, but even then, like in, the, in this very traumatic experience, like I was amazed afterwards about how, I, and I kind of, I couldn't help but laugh, how I still somehow found something creative, like an appreciation for something hmm. that I couldn't even quite understand or explain in that moment. And so I remember... Uh, just to give you a little detail of what I yeah. mean, is, um, I, I, w- I had just paid for my cupcake and banana and bottled water at the cashier, and then I turned around, and I remember I was, like, I was really mesmerized, and I remember hearing my own voice in my head saying, wow, that's really beautiful, and I was following this vine of roses, and I followed this vine that was intertwining and tangled and twisting, and it was on this beautiful, shiny surface, and then when I got to the end of the vine and there was a rose, this gorgeous engraved rose, and then I zoomed out, I thought, wow, that's really, like, whoever did that really has an amazing skill and craft. And then I zoomed out and reality hit and I was like, oh, shit. You know, I, it was um, a rose engraved on the barrel of a shotgun that was pointed at my head. Oh, my God. And And so, you know, it turned into this whole episode about um, survival. Like, I, I was... I learned a lot about myself in terms of how my brain works and uh, and how I respond and react in a traumatic situation, yeah. but I never lost my cool, right? I, I, I was convinced that if I could somehow... Something told me if I could just talk to these two guys with shotguns, if I could talk to them like human beings, and if I could keep calm, then I can calm them. Yeah, And so... They surrounded me and were screaming and, saying, and threatening sh- to blow me away. And I said, just tell me what it is you want from me. Do you, If you want cash, I only have about $19 in my bank account. I'd have to walk to that ATM at the front of the store, and but you're only going to get $19. If you want more than that, I'd have to go to my studio, get a check, and write you a check. But it's going to bounce. So let me offer you all I have. I have a cupcake and a banana and a bottled water. It's yours. It's not much, but you can take it. And I'll never forget wow. their eyes through the ski mask. They looked at each other like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? And they just stared at me and we stared at each other for a few seconds and they just ran and left me alone. And I walked back to my studio. I sat down and at that moment I was creating this large series of um, these four monumental portraits of masculine like archetypes, a soldier, a boxer, a martyr, all in their moments of truth. Mm. Sort of gazing to the heavens, but it's a self-reflection of who they are, what they're made of, and and where they go from here, right, at, in, in, in terms of their own era or setting. And I sat on my couch and I was eating my cupcake and I stared at these drawings and I thought, that's it. Like, these are all a reflection of me right and so and then i got up and i kept drawing and i and but you know in a way it also just made me more and more determined to put these stories out into the world because i understood that like these images like murals once did for me and for others these are images that can speak to people and that people can identify with Um, You don't have to be from a certain background or uh, a certain city or community or a certain ethnicity or a certain political belief or religious belief. Human beings, this is all, these are my visual memorials to the epic and endless struggle of of the human experience. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's, those are, there's three or four episodes for you. Uh, Wow, those are pretty amazing. (laughs) 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 But, you know, I think that uh, there's a
0: certain, actually, I want to say, I'll, I'll
1: let you ask the next question. Yeah.
0: So have you ever had any fear around addressing these difficult subjects and social issues and kind of the complex inquiry that you do? Like, have you ever had any fear about that, facing that?
1: no. Never, um, and I think that for me, that's the um, you know. Sometimes people ask me, um, "Are you very depressed? Are you very?" I was going to ask you that. Yeah, actually. <laughs> are you very troubled? Because these what you make is so dark and 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 disturbing. Some at times, in terms of facing these harsh, brutal truths and realities. Yeah. But you know, that's never the way that I've approached. That's never the way that I've seen my own work or or the world around me. I mean, I think in the studio the irony for me is that the accessibility that i have the opportunity that i have um in being able to um, to have a voice in the studio it, it, the, my life in the studio this work is the only the the closest thing to being absolutely truly free mm. right it's the only real freedom that i've ever known and it's when i'm making this work and so you know there's there's never been a fear like a or a fear of consequence um because i feel like um I don't portray these things aren't entirely fictional, right? This is um if somebody feel if there if a viewer stumbles across some of my work and feels offended or feels um disturbed that they are seeing this image and subject matter, well you know, you don't have to look very far outside in your own backyard, right, to see that these are the realities of the mm. world. And so it's always been more if you ask me what I fear, um, what's the fear? I fear the amnesia, the social amnesia yeah. that, um, that, that hovers around all of us, um, especially today in the 21st century. I always come back to the wise words of um, American author and social critic Gore Vidal, who yeah. said, uh, we are the United States of amnesia. We learn nothing because we remember nothing. And so I definitely am far more concerned with people's ability or lack of ability to look into a truthful mirror. And I think that that's something that we do very exceptionally well in, in, in America today and, 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 and have always done. When I think about the majority of the work that I've created over the past 18 years, um, it's my way of holding up that truthful mirror, right? It's, it's um, because it's not until that we um, can face ourselves in a mirror as, whether it's as Americans or as human beings, then there never really will be any uh, any salvation or real attempt to to truly change who we are and to change our bad habits and our patterns and our ways um but when i reflect back on the number of artists that have um really hit me the hardest you know and i mean just like there's very few that have that i've ever had the experience of witnessing um their work and it just was like a sucker punch to the stomach mm. you know i just couldn't walk away I, I felt you know it was like a cross between feeling completely defeated but also enlightened and raised all in one glorious punch right and um so i think about people um artists like george bellows paul cadmus otto dix kathy Colwitz, paul erigo lucian freud peter saul leon gollub over the years've as i've over a lifetime actually as I've slowly started to collect and keep these artists close to me in my pocket right these are I carry them with me um, the majority of them are you know all long gone, with the exception of a few. but I started to connect the dots and I started to realize that regardless of who these artists were and where they came from and what era throughout the history of the world that they were making work, the connection was that these were all artists who defied The patterns of the art world or of the mainstream world in their times, right? When the world and the art world was going one way, these artists said, it's all right, I'm going the other way. And many of them throughout their lifetimes and careers faced consequences because of the subjects that they were portraying and because of the statements they were making. And that's always what's resonated with me just instinctively. I've gravitated or somehow found these artists over a number of years. And um, that's the lineage that I hope to be a part of someday.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Similar to those artists that you just named, what kind of struggles and challenges do you feel like you've had? Yeah.
1: Um, In my own ways, I've had my own, I've faced my own struggles, you know, whether, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, as an artist of color, I think as a... Mexican American artist, I think, is a figurative artist. I think as a representational artist. I yeah. think as a as a painter who actually relies on skill and craft. You know, it hasn't been until very recently that um, in the world of painting that that focus has shifted yet again on the human figure. You know, fifteen years ago, the art world didn't really care, and so you know, it's it's but it's it's always been something that. Again, when even when I was in my teen years, you know, at age 16, I made these, I pledged these oaths to my work that mm. I would never sway from what it was that I really wanted to see and say in my work. And so regardless of what did or didn't happen throughout the remainder of my career in life. And so it was a vision. It was a testimony in a way. And I would always, I must always keep true to it. You know, this work is, like I said earlier, it's the struggles in the studio that in many, many ways are what propel me forward. I mean, instead of using, of allowing them to to bring me down or to keep me running in circles or keep me stagnant in the studio, I use it as fuel, right? Mm-hmm. It really keeps me motivated and more determined. It's that angst that, you know, I... um it's 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 I've never quite been able to describe the feeling of when I see an image in my head or an idea for the first time, when it's first, that moment of birth. There's this feeling that i've I've always recognized that I've gotten ever since I was a young little kid, I mean, mm. maybe five years old. i mean i I remember it so vividly. It's never changed it's only intensified, and it's this mm. feeling that I feel in my gut, in my bones um, it just feels like something greater than I and now it's important to you know to to explain that that feeling it's impossible for it to last. I mean I think many people have the misconception of. Artist that in the studio that, wow, you're always inspired. You must live like this creative life that just flows 24 seven. No, that's absolutely false. Yeah. Right? It's impossible. It's almost like a high, right? Um, when, when, you know, you have a very strong drink or do whatever it is that you do. And you have this, this golden high, you feel good. It's like a flow state. Yeah, man. There's a crash, right? Oh, and yeah. so there you crash. And so, it's such an intensive moment and in feeling within me and then it disappears. And then after that, it's just work. <laughs> mm. It's trying to complete and get as close to uh, that idea. And, and, and it's truest sense that I first felt, how do you, that's always been my biggest challenge is how do, how do I capture that in an image, the way that that felt for me yeah. so that I can move others to feel the same way. So I think by far my point is that my biggest and only struggle in the studio is time, is the clock, yeah, and um, and just finishing this work because ninety eight percent of it is work. It's showing up every single day, and just chipping away at it, especially because I paint on a very large scale because it's so detail oriented, and after six weeks and then after six months of working on the same piece, it becomes very, I mean, patience is such a big part of being an artist that nobody can, no YouTube tutorial can teach you patience, right, Yeah. in the studio. And so, it's all part of the discipline. Um, And there's the limitations of your body. (laughs) Exactly. And as I'm getting older, I'm starting to feel it in my hands, in my knees, because I stand when I work. And so, you know, there's been some major readjustments to make, um, in the past two to three years. Like my, it's, I'm starting to feel it for the first time. I started so early in life, standing on those scaffolds, on the scaffolding, painting those murals out in the hot Texas sun every day in the summer, as much as I could climbing up and down ladders, mm. right. Just pushing my body to extremes. I thought it'd be like that forever, but now, you know, it changes. So, um, but it's all part of it. And it's a beautiful journey because, uh, All of these different elements and factors continue to reshape your work in some way or another,
0: you know? Where do you think you've got your deep, intense integrity from? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. I mean, where, how was that modeled to you? I mean, it just, that's what you're talking about. Integrity to say, I'm committing to creating this type of work or to bringing up these issues and spending, like you said, I mean, hundreds or thousands of hours that no one sees to keep doing it. Right. <laughs> you know? Where do you think that integrity came from? It's a good question. Um, I don't
1: know. You know, I've always thought that maybe, I've always felt it pick and pull from various artistic influences throughout my lifetime. I, th- I really got to say that I think that um, my determination, my clarity must come from my parents. Um, my... My family has such a strong work ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, my grandfather who cut yards his entire life, every single day in that sun, till he was eighty one years old. That was his living. And he was so proud he was the best yard worker he could do, despite the stories of racism that he would tell me of what it was like what he had encountered because his clients were very wealthy, um, white Americans, right? And so he always felt like he had been spent his life being kicked around, but was a very proud man nonetheless, right? My mother, who is an extremely stubborn and disciplined woman in terms of just doing things herself, right? Like this woman was, when I was growing up, there was a problem with the plumbing. My mom was like fixing the pipes and sanding floors and repainting her entire house and was just like, they. my parents just never stopped working, my dad, who was an aircraft engineer, was such a proud but humble man about being one of the very few Mexican-Americans in his line of work, right, as an aircraft engineer. And, um, and so they would share these stories with me, and I would, I would witness them as a kid just of how determined they were to make it for their kids so that we could go off and get an education and, and pursue um, what it was that we wanted to do. And so I think that that's just, in, it's ingrained in me from birth. You know, I think that um, parents really are the, exa- the prime examples of how you learn to find your way in the world, right? And so yeah. I patterned myself after them. And uh, But you know, it was always funny, like even when I was growing up and I was in the studio or out in the streets, like working on those murals with Alex, it was funny to see my my dad especially come and say, you've been here way too long. You need to get some rest. You, uh, you need to come home. And I would look at him like baffled, like, Dad, you do the same thing at the office, right? Oh, wow, like you yeah. do that. When you get home, you're still working. He would lay out all of his wiring diagrams. He didn't know when to quit. And I didn't know when to quit. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, uh, yeah, so it's just, um, it was repetitive, right? And I see that now in my niece and nephew they're they're young athletes and they are so determined to just be the best at what they can be and they're so determined to make it and i think it's just you know it's being surrounded by those kinds of examples in our family it really
0: does pay off yeah um, it makes me think of the the series that you're working on that you just told me about the the portraits it just it makes me think of it's like all these untold stories of all the incredible sacrifices and hard work sure. that people have done to build this country, and they don't really get the recognition. Sure.
1: I mean, when I look around um, today, in 2018, in 21st century America, where are the platforms for the voices of the common people? You and I, people out on the sidewalks, um, the people of this country who have something to say, right? Because when I think about, even just since 9-11... Think about everything that we have endured in this, in this nation, right? In terms of trauma, in terms of violence, in terms of fighting and struggles, poverty, right? The list goes war. on and on. Wars, right? Endless, perpetual war. We're the platforms for the voices of the people. And that's something that I feel very strongly about. We have lost the ability to recognize that people who are making decisions because they're in positions of power um, are placer by supposedly by we the people, right? And so I think that one, uh, the, you know, one of the very small ways that I can aim to give back to give something back to the world is by providing through visuals this invisible platform, right? And so in this series titled Dream Baby Dream. It consists of about 12 portraits of various Americans, from Native Americans to preachers. These are faces that serve as representatives for common Americans um, that have come up to a podium, a speaker's podium, and each one is standing at a podium flanked by two microphones. But in the series, the viewers start to recognize very quickly that not one person is speaking. The entire conversation is taking place through skeptical glances body language, postures, stares, right? And so this is where we are in America today. We have been so encouraged to remain divided or to be divided amongst each other. um, So that there is a total breakdown of our society.
0: And that group of portraits is kind of part of a larger whole. That includes the city and the portraits that I mentioned initially. Right. That you're working on now. What's the kind of the overall vision for that whole group?
1: Well, this, this um, series of works that's umbrellaed under the title The Beginning is Near has now evolved into an American trilogy, uh, is what I'm calling it, or referring to it as. You know, the, the title The Beginning is Near is um, sort of my take, sort of almost a spoof on that saying, um, The End is Near. Yeah. But what happens if you reverse it, right? What happens if you start to just reformat the way that you see tomorrow? This doesn't have to be where it ends, right? We can start this over again. We can um we can mm. begin all over again. But the way I see it is we have two choices, right? So when I came up with this in two thousand and fifteen when I was starting the city, chapter one, I recognized in two thousand and fifteen that there was a very small window. And these these windows these moments of opportunity arise and and disappear and then arise again throughout time right and that's just that's just the history of the world and so the way I see it is that the beginning is near it goes one of two ways and when I was creating the city, it was a thirty five foot panoramic oil painting of this modern day gathering of Ku Klux Klan members in hoods, men, women, and children over a metropolitan American city anywhere in America. And so that was my way of presenting to the viewer to think critically and to ask themselves, so does the beginning is near mean that we, the, it's, this is the beginning of exposing not only an era of white supremacy in America and how it's functioned and maintained American life both today and yesterday, or does it mean that this is the beginning of a new sort of dark chapter, or this is the rise again of where we're headed of where we're going. And, you know, they're two very different end results. You know, I think that it's important for me as the artist to always present a duality between, um, through the subject, right? So that we always have a choice, right? And there's always room for for something to be changed, right? Or, it's, Or even if it's in terms of just thinking about these things critically, because when I think about the way that we are brought up in America, we are not Educated, we are not conditioned to challenge the American paradigm. We are not conditioned to think critically uh, about digging deeper than what we've been told or what we think we see. And so, when you see images like the city, if you only want to convince yourself that this is just about the Ku Klux Klan and nothing else, then you're missing the bigger picture, right? And I think that this in itself lends or this lends itself to the bigger problem in America. So, one of the examples that I mean by this is. Let's take into account like the toppling of Confederate statues right now, which I think, you know, rightfully so. And as a matter of fact, I'd like to see um, the myth of the Alamo recontextualized to be more historically truthful and accurate. Yeah. But these are only minor, minor pieces of the puzzle, because when we topple these statues or when we let's say that we even erase the Klan permanently in this country, Does that completely disappear the ideologies, the principles, the movement of white supremacy? Not at all. It's so deeply embedded and ingrained in our American perception from education to biased justice systems, right? For-profit prisons, the military-industrial complex, the uh, war on immigration, the war on poverty. Drugs. Right? The war on drugs, all of these elements are only a set of spokes in a bigger wheel, and I think that this is what most Americans have yet to realize: is that um, even down to the designing, the way that our cities are designed and yeah. planned, right, um, revolve around white supremacy and agents of it. And so, but this is buried so far back into our hist- our American history that it's hard to. To see these things and to think about them articulately and clearly, because it can be extremely overwhelming
0: like you're saying, looking in that mirror,
1: sure, sure, it's not an easy thing. I mean, most of us have just a hard enough time looking at ourselves in the bathroom mirror right and, yeah. uh, on a daily basis, and so um, but those mirrors can reveal a whole lot, you know and I think it's starting to in our lifetime we're starting to see minor shifts, right things that are happening certain movements a certain awareness about america about america and who we who we are right i think that america has for so long been so painfully trapped between the myth of who we think we were and the reality of what we really are Mm -hmm. but now there is a slight moment of awakening i think especially with the younger generations of americans and so again, going back to that title, the beginning is near. This could be the start of a new way of seeing the world around us, right? Not only confined within American borders, but beyond American borders in the way that we view the rest of the world and its rela- and our relationship to it um, is something that I think we is long overdue in this country. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I really do think thinking critically is a huge key to it. Yeah. Yeah. For and sure. just scrutinizing really all the information that we hear and see. It's yep. given to us, that's fed to us. We have to not just take it on face value.
1: Right. And, and I think that, um, you know, I always think about good old um, George Carlin, comedian, who had this line that just really stuck with me in one of his uh, stand-up routines, and he said, um, they want to keep you just smart enough to work a machine in the factories and do your job, but they want to keep you dumb enough to think too much beyond you know sitting in front of the television getting up next morning going back to work right and and it really there's some truth to that I mean I think that yeah I think he had the right idea in terms of just trying to poke and encourage people to think a little bit more deeper about about this sort of misperceptions um, that are out in the world because there, you know there's there's plenty of them
0: I wonder, though, how how do you reach those people, the people that work every day and they go home and watch TV? I mean...
1: Yeah, well, I think that... uh, Surely, I think that that art is but one small way of of providing informative, educational information, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that... uh, Although I don't think that art is going to save the world, right? I I don't think that there's any guarantee that um, artists can or even should convince people otherwise in terms of their beliefs or politics. But I do think that what's most important for me as an artist is that art can provide moments of silence, and moments of clarity during times of immense distortion and chaos, because that's yeah. really important. I mean, I think right now we are in the middle of so much noise out in the yeah. outside, right? And um, from the television to the radio to politics to culture, there's so much noise and, and distortion and disillusion that it's hard. It's very overwhelming. I think it's natural for human beings to want to just cower away and say, this is too much. I'm just going to lock myself in my house and live my life and and concern myself with me and only me. Yeah. Right. And so I think now we are seeing the end result of generation after generation of this mentality. Now we're starting to realize, like, hey, wait a minute here, what happens to you does affect me in one way or the or another eventually, right? And so, but that can be very confusing when you have, especially after 9/11 powerful voices convincing you and I that we should not be associated that we should not be concerned about one another that we should actually be suspicious of each other right mm-hmm. because i might be coming for you and you might be coming for me so you know i think that um there's a lot to consider in one's own simple way of life today and i think that art for me has been that that outlet that way of just trying like i said earlier to make sense of the world outside of my studio doors and to try to come to terms with what reality is and to try to get a grasp of it, right? So that I can go out into the world and function and, and not be so afraid like we are encouraged to be. You know, fear is, is such a tremendous, powerful force if you let it, if you allow it to be in the driver's seat in your life. And so, so, yeah. Yeah
0: um, isn't fear really kind of the basis of racism and sure. white supremacy it's, it's like fear of the other sure. fear that someone's going to move in and change my life the way i like it or sure. something like
1: that yeah and it always has been it's the oldest trick in the book you know and and i think that another eye-opening experience was when i traveled for the first time beyond the united states and went to europe yeah went to berlin went to a few other cities and and countries and i saw just um you know, the whole world has its own issues that they're dealing with and they always have. But there was such a stark reality check, I think, for me. The the ability for people to just be present with each other in the streets and the sidewalks and the subways and there's communication. I felt like it was very easy to communicate with people more so than in the United States. You know, I feel like I can go to certain cities and, and you just kind of know... Um, like in Los Angeles, you know, you can go up to people and talk. But even when I was living in Los Angeles, I realized, I learned very quickly, standing in line at a grocery store in Los Angeles was totally different to standing at a line in HEB in an H-E-B here in San Antonio where you can talk to somebody like they were your best friend and you'd known them even though you'd never even seen them. Yeah. In Los Angeles, it's sort of like... What do you want? Right? Yeah. What do you want? New me? York, different story, and and but I think that you know fear is is really um, can be a very very powerful tool that um, can be used in very very dangerous ways, as,
0: as the world knows by now. Yeah. Um, I just I feel like looking from the outside, looking at your work, looking at your approach, it seems like you just must be thinking about all these things so deeply thinking about yourself thinking about the world thinking about how you feel about everything i mean it just it seems like yeah i mean like you said earlier someone might assume wouldn't you be depressed but you know i mean you're not afraid at all to look deep to look in that mirror you know like what have you learned about yourself over these decades of being an artist by looking in that mirror
1: well, I think that, like earlier you asked me about specific defining life-changing moments. I'd yeah. say that, because I have asked myself ever since I was younger, like, why am I attracted to these certain subjects and why can't I just be norm- more normal, right? Yeah. Like, especially when I was a kid. And I think that, uh, I think maybe by the time I was, I don't know, a young adult and I had come up with the idea or the theory that it was maybe attributed to two different factors in terms of like how i subconsciously saw the world or myself and i you know so when i was i was born i was born extremely ill oh my. and i spent my first six or eight weeks in an incubator tied up with tubes and they didn't think i was going to make it and uh my mother said that um like i was really suffering and and she was just they were it was just misery for her and my yeah. father and yeah. i was the first son and and uh, and then my grandmother walked in and met me for the first time. And uh, and then she told my mom, he's going to have a special gift. He's going to do something because he's going to have something to say. And my mother never forgot that. And she first shared that with me when I was probably about five or six years old because hmm. um, I was already drawing. And, uh, and I think maybe the experience of being a middle child really messed me up in many ways because I always felt like an outsider and so maybe that's why I always connected to artists other painters at such an extremely young age was because maybe there was this underlying um shared knowledge of remaining on the fringes of the world you know at the edge of the world in order to observe and experience the world so although I never fit in growing up, you know, it was a really tough time because I didn't play football. I, I wasn't an athlete and, you know, and in Texas, you know, in the eighties being a creative kid, like it's just not like it is now where I think now there's more of an awareness and, uh, and, uh, an appreciation yeah. yeah, for young talent. And so, but because I could draw, that was always my golden ticket to just be left alone. The athletes and the coaches left me alone because they knew I was the go-to guy to draw their banners for the games and the the t-shirts. I just always was, I was more interested in observing others, you know, so I would always draw like these almost like comic book caricatures of the different hairstyles and different personalities in schools. But looking back, you know, my mother still has all of these drawings and once in a while, you know, I'll bring them back out and just glance at them. And what's always interesting to me is that I never, everybody's included except except me. Yeah. Right. So I was always just sort of circling the edges. Right. And yeah, yeah. one of my very first drawings that, that I have, uh, I was probably about four years old and it was this infatuation, this obsession with the ugly duckling and the story of the ugly duckling. And so what's really funny is that uh, I did the portrait of the ugly duckling just floating. And then I did almost in a caricature self-portrait, a self-portrait as a fish. Who's like, so he's like even behind the ugly duckling, tailing the ugly duckling, right? And so it was just, yeah, like, I, I don't know. There's some kind of a fascination of um, just being an observer
0: to the world. I'm not sure if that answers your question. but yeah. yeah. I'm just wondering what your grandma saw. And if that message, getting that message growing up didn't influence you some way.
1: Maybe. I, I think that, um I just think it was something that was just drawing for me was I was doing it by the time I was learning to walk and talk and so yeah. it was I was such a quiet shy kid that drawing was my first form of real communication with the world and with others right and so it just was I knew there was something different as early as kindergarten because I wasn't drawing stick figures but I just didn't think much about it because it was just so I thought everybody could do it mm-hmm. it was so natural yeah. until I got in school but that was—I mean—I never thought about being anything else. This was it. I mean, I never wanted to go into another type of career or spend my life doing. This was all I ever wanted to do. And so, you know, I just—I had somewhat of an odd childhood because I just wanted to do my own thing, and, and that always related to art. And so, I, in many ways, I sacrificed like an entire childhood. I didn't have those experiences of. Mm. You know, just, um, I don't know, dating or, I don't know, hanging out in the streets with my friends. And uh, I just, I was so committed. I just wanted to be on those walls painting as wow. much as I could. Um, and just learning and learning. I was very ambitious. I couldn't get enough of it, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know? How do you think about all the hard work you've put in now and, and kind of the, the success that you have now? I mean, how do you think about success? Do you feel... Successful, or do you feel like you've got a long way to go before you get where you want to be or yeah
1: i I don't think of success in monetary terms um it doesn't really mean anything to me. It doesn't navigate the way that I work in the studio. If I had to define whether I felt successful, it would I would ask myself, "Am I doing what I want to be doing?" The answer would be yes, you know I'm sitting in the studio just making my work, and so I would say. Um yeah I'm very happy doing that. It's the times that um the few moments throughout my life that that prevent that might have prevented me very temporarily from doing that that I was most miserable. Um but mm. that's that's the way that I calculate whether or not I've been successful. No matter how old I get, I always feel like I'm still not reaching my fullest potential. Mm. I feel like I'm behind. I feel like I'm incapable in some ways. The only difference is that when I f- would think that way when I was 25, it would it would drive me nuts because I didn't know how to comprehend that. Mm. I'd get very frustrated as opposed to now at age 40. Well, I know how to have a handle of that. I know to appreciate that feeling because that's what's going to keep me motivated, right? Every single, the way the city actually came about was that every single time that I finished a project, so I had finished Stranger's Fruit and I, I always sit there, The moment that those works leave in an empty studio and I ask, well, how in the hell am I going to top that one? Mm. And that's always my goal. That's my goal is, uh, and so then I came over to the city and I thought, well, I can top it in scale, right? And then after the city left the studio, I sat there completely terrified. Mm. How in the hell (laughs) am I going to top the city? 35 feet, this stark image of these hooded figures. One year of work, and then when I feel a glimpse of like, oh, man, I just don't know if I can ever top that, and then dream baby dream happened, and now I can, I look at dream baby dream and saw it, and I, for one of the first times, feel like I topped it, but now I'm already asking, I would just sent a message to my uh, gallerist the other day and said, how in the hell am I going to top dream baby dream? (laughs) (laughs) So it's good. It's this. it's this race for me, Uh And, and, and I'm the only person in the race, right? And that finish line keeps moving further and further back. But that's so exciting to me because it's a lifetime of, of work. I just hope that I'm around long enough to just, get, I've got so many ideas, I can't possibly ever catch up, but that's okay. You know, it's it's, it's okay with me because uh, it'd be much worse if I was sitting here with no ideas, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at times it is fun. There's moments that it's fun. There's other moments where it's just, uh, I don't want to be in the studio, but I, I have to be these private spaces for me, they're quiet. You know, I don't um, normally work with assistants um, too often. And so uh, the joy is just looking around and seeing things moving in here and things happening and coming to life. But then 10 seconds later, it's complete fear of like, damn it, I'm still not finished with this. And there's all these things are waiting for me. And the more that I'm not in here, they're just staring at me. Uh, they stare me down and are just asking, like, when are you going to pay attention to me? But I have a tendency to bounce around between drawing black and white, color, painting, printmaking, now sculpture. I just try to reinvent myself. That's always been my goal, is is reinvention is key. Um, I never wanted to be an artist that was stagnant and that became recognizable. right? I, I always wanted to be the artist who um, was about to open... And people were asking, what um, did he do next? Because I'd much rather have that than be a predictive artist um, and have someone say, well, I saw the last show, it'll probably be similar. I don't need to see this one, right? But it's challenging. I mean, it's not easy sometimes because uh, one of the most complicated aspects of being an artist is learning to be an editor, Right, and just mm-hmm. learning to be your own editor and how to edit out ideas and kill ideas off permanently and keep others with you and let them almost like a um you know, almost like if you're making like if my grandma was making a really good soup, right? Um, she just would let it formulate and let it sit and it smells so good and she would say it's not ready yet. You gotta <laughs> wait and it's like grandma I'm hungry. No, and then when you and then when it finally that moment arrives it was worth the wait, right? Yeah. But I do notice that as I'm getting older, um, ideas don't come to me as fast as they used to. There's more of a lengthy process, right? When I was younger, like, ideas would just pop up in my head, and I, would, I wouldn't even write them down. I'd just keep them there. Now I have to write them down because I might forget. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they take a lot longer to brew. And so, um, but you know, it's just part of it, part of the process.
0: So one of the limits, really, is time. It's not necessarily skill. I mean, do you feel like you have the skill to accomplish anything that you want or do you still feel like you have a way to go skill-wise?
1: I feel like in terms of skill, for one of the first times in my almost 41 years of existence, that I can now finally say, I can paint anything that I want to. Mm. I can manipulate my tools and materials because I know them so well after 40 years of practice. But I wouldn't dare say that about other new territories like, sculpture or making a graphic novel or printmaking even because I feel like I'm still just a beginner I'm a rookie but it took me a long time to get to to arrive at that moment where I could say that about or feel that way about painting yeah yeah and so I'll probably feel that way for about a year and then I'm gonna probably look at these things and say man I'm I know nothing about painting (laughs) (laughs) that's good right and uh yeah and that's just it's got to evolve it's got to keep changing mutating into something different. You know, I don't know what that is yet, but uh hopefully I find out sometime soon, you know.
0: Yeah, it seems like you've managed to stay very humble about everything. I mean, you don't seem to have any ego at all about <laughs> where you've gotten yourself, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't I just say thank you. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's not something that I, I don't know what I would have to be overly proud about right i just i'm just doing the thing that i'm fortunate enough to do that i want to do and that i work that i work at you know there's plenty of workers in the world that you know and and but i think that the only thing i would say that i'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity to do is to do something that i love um mm. very passionately because you know i i know that there's people in the world that uh don't always have that opportunity or they might not be willing to take the risk because it is a risk, right? Yeah. To do what you love to do. At times, I think a lot of
0: people don't take that risk. Yeah, a lot can of people. It be a scary
1: thing, especially in the art world, right? So there's never a guarantee of, there's no guarantee of anything ever happening, whether it's financially, whether it's in terms of exposure, right? Progress in the studio. Yeah, It's a, I just... Um, like if I didn't, if I wasn't doing this, I don't know what I would be doing because I'm so stubborn in my ways and my determination, like my mother is. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You the, would be depressed. Probably. Yeah, yeah. I, I I would refuse to go get what my dad considers a real job, right? <laughs> yeah. I just wouldn't do it. So regard if I was digging ditches, you know, I would still find a way. I'm almost absolutely certain. To find two hours of my day to just do this, because then I would no longer be who I am, or I, I would no longer feel like my presence here in this world is um is being fulfilled if I couldn't do this at all. Yeah. Right. And um, I have a a phobia. My only phobia, I think, is um, I can't really put my hands in my pockets because it I get this feeling, the sense of anxiety, and so I have um this recurring dream that I've had since I was a kid and it's of being bound of having my hands bound mm-hmm. that scares me more than anything else and uh, and so I know what that is it just means that um, I I want to work with my hands and, and create so yeah I don't it, think I've ever told that to anybody oh wow <laughs> yeah well thanks
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you've done teaching also too I have right? and I
1: really enjoy teaching I love working with young yeah tell me what students, that's like um,
0: and what how do you encourage them how do you grow their ability and their confidence you know like how do you work with young students young artists well i i think that
1: it always came so natural f- for and somewhat easy for me because all i was doing was sharing what was handed to me and taught to me yeah. when i was their age right and so all i was doing it was i was just repeating that process I was always taught that as an artist the most important thing other than discipline and and knowing your skill honing in on your skills in practice was honesty just sheer honesty that's it mm. and so when I started teaching you know it was very it was it wasn't complicated at all to encourage young creativity right there i mean skills are that's something entirely separate and i think that that's where teaching can get very convoluted and very Mm. complicated because just because you have polished skills doesn't isn't a guarantee that you're ever going to be a good artist right you have to learn to connect I always would start in that first week um, with these exercises of trying to emphasize and embed into the young students that you had to imagine a tool like a make-believe tool and this tool was no longer just a pencil And it was no longer your hand and it was no longer your eyeballs and it was no longer your brain. But it was all one now. And you had to take this tool and find out for yourself how to connect, fuse them all together. And then once you learn that, then you cannot forget the most important part of that tool. More important than any other aspect of it is you have to take that tool and figure out how it connects to to here, to your heart. right? Because without that, then the work is meaningless if it has no heart, right? Like that that corazon, I mean, that's where the life is. Mm. There's a hundred ways to fake anything, right? But if it has no heart, then it has no essence. It has no truth to it. But how do you teach this, right? Like in um, modern day art school. And so, you know, I really enjoyed my, my time teaching. I've done it off and on. But in the end, part of me felt somewhat guilty in a way that i semester after semester was finding myself in this repetitive flux and talking about these things like heart and thinking critically i felt like maybe i started re-examining myself and wondering if i was now just sort of part of this production um that had no heart to it right mm. and so and so i i knew at that moment it was time to step back and allow somebody else a chance to take over but I really, I cherish those connections with, with those artists that I've helped uh, mentor over the years and uh, and see them, some of them, you know, eventually develop on their own and, and flourish out uh, into the art world. And so, uh, yeah, it's someday maybe I'm, I'll return to it. But right now, my focus is, is here in the studio. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, on kind of a different subject, like, what is it like having a partner that's an artist and then also collaborating with that partner? So... Throughout my past,
1: there's always been, especially older artists who were somewhat mentors or just giving me a piece of advice, the majority of them always said, don't ever get with another artist I because right? there'll be competition, <laughs> it's cutthroat, you'll drive each other nuts, and uh, I've been with Adriana Corral for uh, almost a decade now, and I oh. met Adriana when I was doing an exhibition at the University of Texas at El Paso. I got I, I was about 24, about twenty four, twenty five at that time. She was in school as a as a as an undergrad student, and I did a studio visit with her, and we just had this amazingly strong connection. And uh, I couldn't stop thinking about her, yeah. and, and, you know. <laughs> but I was in Los Angeles; she was in El Paso, and we didn't talk for about three and a half more years. Oh wow! Four years, and then uh, we reconnected after about four years. And we were still just friends. Um, and then it just, everything else eventually just fell into place. And um, But I never forgot her. I mean, it was this connection that was unlike any other. Uh, but I think that what I love most about being with Adriana is that I respect her work tremendously. I respect who she is as an artist. And for me, that's extremely important. Yeah. Like, it's extremely important. Uh, I respect her as a human being. I respect the way that she thinks, the way that she works. You know, I, I feel like we are each other's equals. I don't feel like I'm walking behind somebody. I don't feel like I'm walking in front of somebody. But that's asking a lot. You know, that's, yeah. I, I realize that's a lot to, to look for in a significant other. And um, so I just feel very fortunate to be um, sharing this experience in, at this moment in time with, with this person you know she makes extremely powerful work right now she just returned 2 days ago after a, a 2 month fellowship at the Smithsonian she was digging through the national archives wow her recent project is dealing with the almost vanished history of um the delousing facilities that were used for uh migrant workers in el paso and on Mm. the borders of texas just extremely disturbing again disturbing tragic piece of american history that most of us aren't even slightly aware of yeah and so i always joke with adriana and tell her that if we ever do a show together people are going to walk out of that space and head straight for the bars because (laughs) it's going to be the most (laughs) depressing like uh heavy work and subjects but uh but we're really excited to be collaborating for the first time on a project that's going to open up at Mass MoCA next spring. So yeah, and, and that we're uh, sitting right next to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, titled Requiem, a, a collapsing, beyond life-size uh, American eagle that's sort of caught in an eternal conflict with itself. And so I'm, I'm very excited about adriana being here in houston with me i'm very excited about her future as an artist i think she's going to be extremely tremendous artist so i'm lucky to be able to see her in in the very first stages of this career yeah yeah hope that answers the question <laughs> yeah
0: can you talk about this sure tell me about this sculpture because it's one of your first right right this is
1: my uh, my very first sculpture i mean there's been like two other minor attempts in the past 12 years, or so there were complete failures that I made sure disappeared. This is the first one that I'll actually put out into the world. Um, but this is based after a drawing that I did in 2012 titled Requiem. Originally, that idea was sparked by, I don't know if you remember around that time, there was like this worldwide phenomenon occurring where people were walking outside and there was like thousands of birds that would just fall out of the skies mm. in fields and streets, pigeons, um, hawks. They didn't know if it was due to global warming or frequencies yeah, in the yeah. air and, and then it just sort of disappeared. And so I remember reading one, an article one day about one of these incidents and I immediately thought like, wow, wouldn't that be wild if like we walked somewhere in America and these eagles, these sacred Images of these bald eagles, these birds that we hold very sacred. It's like a
0: symbol of America. Yeah, exactly.
1: Freedom and and force and invulnerability. What if these things just like fell out of the sky? Yeah. How would we how do we respond to that, right? Because and, uh, of
0: something we did or the way we've been living or exactly.
1: something. And, and exactly. Then, and then beyond that, just as a metaphor, right, for yep. the state that we're in. Or, and so then I created this drawing, large pencil drawing. But I work so, I see so dimensionally working on a two-dimensional surface anyway that it's always been a dream of mine to bring one of these things to life. And so I never let up on that since 2012. And then in 2015, I, I um, began working on this sculpture with a fellow sculptor, uh, we worked side by side, uh, it took 850 pounds of clay mm. to model this thing at, based after my drawing, and then now I'm. you're seeing it at the very tail end of the second phase, and now it has one more phase, the third phase is it'll finally be cast as a bronze, which is going to be really amazing. So it's designed to hover six inches off the ground, so it's... Um, gives the illusion of levitation, Mm -hmm. but it really, my aim was to flip, to reverse that powerful metaphor and symbolism uh, on its head, right? Because if I can just for one moment get somebody to consider, well, what happens if you turn the idea of the American myth upside down? Mm -hmm. What if we as a people or as a collective society aren't as invulnerable as we were taught or, or told? Or on top of the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. What if we are fragile? What if we are vulnerable after all? And so here we see this epic, almost um, like not
0: majestic.
1: Yeah, ma- that's a good word. Actually, here we see this epic, majestic, once majestic bald eagle that's collab- on the verge of collapse, gasping for its last breath. And if you start to look closely, it's highly—it's as rendered as any of my detail detailed drawings or paintings would be every feather, right? The anatomy, the the contortion of the body. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot of drama injected into it. But then the viewer starts to recognize there's no visible wounds, right? There's no visible mm. wounds that are depicted from an outside man or an outside threat. The wounds are self-inflicted from its own claws, right? And so that, to me, says everything. That's the powerful metaphor about who we are as a society, right? Mm. Um, And so this could be a number of different interpretations based off of the viewer and their response to this idea and how it affects them and their own personal experiences in America. And so maybe this will be the one that gets me exiled to Cuba. (laughs) We'll
0: see. (laughs) So it'll be cast in bronze and then you said it would be in a kind of a black matte...
1: Almost like graphite because the original idea was that I was convinced that I was going to make one cast of it in... Ultra cow, which is almost like a plaster, a white plaster like substance. So it looks like a classical sculpture, like a Bernini wood. Because I was going to sit there for another year and by hand, with a small lithocrayon, redraw it back to life on its surface. Every mm-hmm. render, every feather, and bring it back to life. After three and a half years, that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> because it would be another full year. And so uh, I've abandoned that idea and then have decided to cast it in a patino. It has a graphic-like tint to it or surface. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see one of these things placed outside eventually, like on a sidewalk or in a park. That would bring it full circle back to that original idea uh, six years ago.
0: Yeah, um, and so, what's yeah. the collaboration with Adriana and the kind of the presentation st- that you had told me about at Mass MoCA? Right. So, I, I,
1: when this opens at Mass MoCA, next spring, it will be carried in in a funeral-like procession well, with musicians flanking either side of it as it's laid to rest or or placed impermanently in that space. And the inside of the eagle itself um, becomes a almost like a, a tomb capsule. Adriana and I have been working over the past year to collaborate with 231 various Americans, everything, everyone from bus drivers to doctors to scholars, musicians, artists, nannies, yard workers, immigrants, citizens, convicts, um, prison inmates, uh, and so forth. It's supposed to be representative of the people. And so every single one of these people have contributed, and collaborated with us by contributing a personal text. We got some beautiful texts from people. Just very simple, short, and we've asked them to select a date that signifies, in some way, their American experience. Hmm. And so, Adriana's contributed text, for example, was the date that the mayor wrote. I think some the mayor of El Paso in 1916 wrote. An alarming, desperate letter to the White House, to the president at that time, urging uh, Washington to send him, I don't know, some ridiculous amount of funding so that he could militarize the border because dirty criminal Mexicans were trying to invade America, right? And so they become education, almost like what Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States mm-hmm. uh, would be an interpreta- a similar interpretation Adriana will reduce each one of these texts to ash, and then that those ashes will be permanently embedded inside of the actual bronze. This is our way, again, of trying, in a very tiny way, um, giving a voice back to uh, the people. You know, I also think about Howard Zinn, who had this amazing small script written um, where he talked about that someday in the future, his hope was that the skewing of American history would no longer be relevant and um, be in the possession, in the hands of only powerful white men in this country or in, in the hands of politicians or in the hands of celebrities or in the hands of anybody who is already in a position of power. His hope was that the people of the United States would be provided platforms to speak their voice and to speak their experiences about this country because only then would it be a more truthful Version of of American history, and so in some way I think that this is um, this
0: parallels that idea. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Maybe we could wind this up. Sure. Maybe just by telling me about your exhibit that's coming up very soon, within a week, and then you're going on a residency, and maybe just kind of give me an idea what the future looks like.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so my exhibition, Dream Baby Dream, part two of the beginning is near. Premieres this week. Um, on Friday, September 7th, my 31st birthday, at David Shelton Gallery here in Houston. It'll be up through November, and then eventually it travels on to Mass Mocha in spring of 2019. Right after the opening this Friday, Adriana and I will spend the weekend scrambling the pack, and then we head out to the Joan Mitchell Foundation for an artist residency, uh, where we will be um, from September through late December. And so we're really looking forward to this. I've never been to New Orleans. I've always heard amazing, fascinating things about it. And so I'm really looking forward not only to exploring the city, but just being in residence with um, other fellow artists. At this residency, my aim is to begin chipping away at the final chapter of um, the trilogy, The Beginning is Near, with the New Americans. And so there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but i'm very excited um should be a fun time it's going to be nice to get a change of uh, environment change of landscape change of faces uh and then come back to houston refreshed yeah. um
0: yeah and anyone listening that's in austin can visit the blanton yes until october 28th i think to see the city one and two right in person i think that's the right day you probably know better. Yeah, I, <laughs> I do
1: yet. Yeah. i looked it up yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you get a chance um the city has been, God, it's already been six weeks now. I can't, it seems like it was just yesterday that it opened. And so my hope is that after the city is no longer on display to Blanton, and it starts to take on a whole other life and starts to travel around the United States mm. at some point in the future. And so, uh, so yeah, big plans, big goals. But what I'm most curious about at this moment is reflecting back on images like the city and the strangest fruit and the painting from 2001 killed the Pachuco bastard, because it's still my way of connecting these dots, not only between the artwork itself, but between the art and the real world outside of the studio. You know, it's, it's one thing to watch images like the city or Requiem unfold and come to life in the studio. It's a whole other ball game to see it actually unfold and come to life outside in the real world. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I'm very curious to see where this path leads me, and uh, and and where I end up, even over the next year. It's going to be a busy year, but uh, but I'm ready to take it on.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, and I really do encourage people to see the city in person because. Photos can't really do it justice as far as the detail and looking into the eyes of these people that you realize are just regular people, really. I mean, that's what you see when you're standing there. Right. That they're just normal people. Right. I mean, and for me,
1: that should be... That's the most disturbing aspect of it all, is that entities like the Ku Klux Klan or the broad subject of white supremacy in the United States and even globally... In some ways, um, but especially in the u s is completely in many ways and perspectives viewed as a, just a normal slice of American life, right that this is so normalized in our country one of the one of the comments that I often hear from um, viewers is the reaction to the child there's a, a toddler yeah um, who's in a like little mini me hood and and baby nike shoes and his or her, hers little robe. And I think that in many ways we tend to think about children and women in terms of, talk, of speaking about and reflecting on notions of power. It's almost always geared towards um, males, mm-hmm. right? And so you know, now you see on Instagram or on online media where there's these exposés and these episodes of people caught on camera in the middle of their racist rants, right? Yeah. And so we tend to not want to think about women and children as being part, again, as another spoke in this bigger wheel. And so I think that my aim, my hope is that with that painting, it really, on, in many different ways and on different levels, helps to contribute just a little bit to help people see things differently, to just for a second, just for one moment, look further past what we think we're, we're seeing already. The symbols are there. The narratives are there. It's up to us to decode them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. thanks for all your hard work. (laughs) I really
1: appreciate it. And thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming to visit me. It's awesome to have you. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care.